this this is the new normal and people need to get used to it but it's still going to take some time and i think we need to realize that hello i'm dave gans mgma senior fellow of industry affairs welcoming you to the executive session a discussion with a healthcare leader on the critical issue of interest to medical practice executives today the united states is in the midst of a health crisis as the COVID-19 pandemic has spread throughout the country. As social distancing and other factors have flattened the curve, many states are reopening businesses and medical group practices are resuming full operations. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Frank Chapman, MBA, Director of Strategic Development for the Ohio Gastroenterology Group, Columbus, Ohio, for his insights and how a medical group can best provide appropriate care while protecting staff, patients, and providers from COVID-19 in the post-pandemic environment. Frank, can you please introduce yourself and describe your responsibilities with Ohio Gastroenterology? Uh, thank you, Dave. Appreciate the invitation. Uh, about the last 20 years, I've uh, been an administrator in various uh, GI groups. I'm currently the Director of Strategic uh, Development for the Ohio Gastroenterology Group. Basically, that is uh, an emeritus position, really having to do with continued negotiation of payer contracts and being able to take a step back and provide the group with uh, some strategic direction with uh, some view of what's going on around the country. I'm an active Medicare surveyor with AAAHC. I primarily uh, survey endoscopy centers but I'm also uh, credentialed to do other settings. For the last 15 years, I've had the great pleasure uh, to be a member of the ASGE's Operations uh, Development Committee. We deal with issues associated with efficient operation of endoscopy centers around the country and also deal with advocacy issues from time to time. Uh, the United States has reported over a million cases of uh, coronavirus, and most states have imposed limits on businesses, as well as restricted uh, movement of, its, of state residents as part of a safer-at-home strategy in order to reduce the spread of COVID-19. Part of the strategy has been to cancel elective medical services to limit the use of personal protective equipment so it can be used by hospitals treating coronavirus patients. Primary care and many specialty groups are continuing to treat patients and have had to address ways to safely care for patients affected by the virus. Frank, uh, can you give some insights what has happened in Columbus, Ohio, and also how did COVID-19 affect the Ohio Gastroenterology Group? One thing that I've come to be very aware of is the great uh, variation in how federal, state, and even local policies have impacted medical groups around the country. In Ohio and Columbus, basically not only has CMS eliminated elective surgical procedures, but Ohio has actually shut down completely. So the practice is uh, currently performing no surgery procedures whatsoever. Uh, we actually have five endoscopy centers and in a normal year, we would have been doing about 35,000 cases, and that's been shut down for almost two months now. The office, we probably see about 
61, 62,000 office visits every year. And for the same amount of time, that's primarily been shut down. We're still trying to do such things as infusion when we can, flipped almost everybody over to uh, telemedicine, which in the GI world is brand new. But uh, it's dramatically impacted the practice and the ability of the practice to maintain staff. Uh, most of the physicians have foregone uh, any compensation during this time so that we can use uh, those type of funds to protect the employment of our staff. Now, you mentioned how you, you've moved everything to telemedicine. So often we hear of how te- telemedicine can accommodate you know, 70% or even sometimes even more of the patient requirements in a primary care. So as a specialty practice, you've got a unique situation. So what, what, have you, what experience have you had with telemedicine and how have you used that in a gastroenterology practice? Well, keep in mind, although uh, we are no longer doing elective procedures, although we hope to open that up soon, we continue to do hospital procedures and emergency procedures. A lot of the telemedicine that we're doing right now, of course, you have some that's uh, simply prescription refills, routine things, but also uh, we have a high degree of communication with our primary care physicians and other referring physicians to be able to basically screen patients for those who uh, dire need of surgical procedures that would normally be done in the hospital so that we can go ahead and continue that portion of the business. I was talking this morning to uh, Dr. Bruce Hennessy, the lead physician in our group, and uh, he has telemedicine visits scheduled all afternoon from about 1230 to five o'clock, one right after the other. So the, the magnitude of those, the frequency of those is fairly high right now. And, you know, one thing that I think everybody that has not been familiar with telemedicine before is we're all trying to get uh, the process down in terms of having uh, those patients pre-screened in terms of setting up calls. Proper telemedicine courses is a video, it's a visual medium, and we're finding that uh, the majority of our patients uh, don't have the ability to do that, so many of these are voice calls only. So we're struggling with that. I think we're doing better all the time, but it's a totally different environment that we're into now. And I will say that most everybody that I speak with doesn't believe that that environment's going to flip back to the traditional visits anytime soon. Yeah, I, I would agree. I think that the opportunities for doctors and patients for convenience, as well as a continuity of care with telemedicine, uh, is that we're going to see a significant expansion in telemedicine in all aspects. Uh, and all specialties. Now, did you do any specific training for your doctors? Because obviously video or audio only is a very different environment for them. So have you trained them or how are your doctors accommodating the the technology? First couple of weeks were rough. Uh, We were somewhat blessed in having an EMR that had a capacity for that, although we hadn't been using it. 
And so we started off there. I think a lot of groups around the country are starting out with one uh, telemedicine um, resource. And as time goes on, they're finding others that they transition to. It was definitely, you know, learning on the job, not just for uh, physicians, but especially for staff uh, assisting the physicians with the preparation for the call. Uh, You still have to review the patient record. You have to review tests. You have to make sure everything is ready to go. You have to make sure that the patient is going to be on the call. So there's a great deal of work that's being done right now by staff in support of the physicians. I think the physicians primarily are used to a certain flow in an exam, and much of that has had to be altered. I think certain practice patterns by some physicians are probably changing a little bit faster than others. I think everybody is having to adapt and doing as well as they can. Yeah, and they've, everybody has to change. And I, I can see why certain younger physicians may accommodate that quicker. In addition to telemedicine, uh, have you continued to see patients in the practice? Very seldomly. Uh, we now have all of our offices closed. We're trying to figure out ways to continue infusion. Uh, We're doing that on a limited basis, but not at the frequency that we had been. Now, since you're in the state of Ohio, when can you expect to be able to open up? Well, we actually expect to do limited, limited elective procedures beginning next Friday. The governor has allowed that now. One of the biggest issues we have that I think is probably predominant across the country is there's uh, many groups, many medical practices, and when they restart, they just do it the way they used to. And that's not true at all. So we're trying to be as uh, safe and as cautious as we can. It's not just an issue of reopening. It's guaranteeing that your patients and your providers and your staff are going to be safe. You mentioned earlier about your involvement with the American Society for Gastrointestinal Endoscopy, or ASGE, and I know that you recently were a participant and an author, a participant in ASGE workgroup, and an author in a white paper that ASGE has published called Guidance for Resuming Elective GI Endoscopy in Practice Operations After the COVID-19 Pandemic. So much of what Uh, your white paper discusses, involves any type of practice. It could be primary care, it could be general surgery, it could be urology, because you're going to still have some of the same issues as far as screening patients, creating a safe facility, using appropriate personal protective equipment or PPE to safeguard patient staff, you know, and your providers. So all these these same issues apply. Can you talk, give us some insights on the process you went through with the physicians involved on the work group on what you did to create this, the, the document and its practicality. Sure. First of all, let me say one of the uh, highlights of the paper that you, you don't see often is an acknowledgement of things that we don't know. Reentering surgery in this environment, the fact is we just don't know a lot of things. And so what the paper tried to do is discuss evidence where there's evidence, but not, not to uh, present ideas that are not based on evidence. 
And I think that was a real key consideration. Yeah. And, uh, and I, actually, as an aside, I think the advantage of having your physicians, our physicians as the authors, is that this as evidence-based medicine is how you practice. This is, this is a great example of evidence-based management policies. Yeah, I think the ASGE did a wonderful job. To give you an idea of the involvement, uh, three of the physicians that were involved in both authoring and reviewing the paper are currently working on Manhattan Island. And obviously their awareness of the situation and the intensity of the situation is much different than those working in other parts of the country. Uh, We also had uh, two physicians from California where the incidence rate is much higher than other parts of the country involved. So we had a, a wide spectrum of input and we had extensive discussions before Penn went to paper. And I think that probably has a lot to do with the quality of the suggestions. It's been posted and commented on uh, in many different areas around the country outside of ASGE. I, I applaud the, the ASGE for considering this as valuable to to doctors of all specialties. And I, you know, and I think it's uh, just excellent uh, service to, the, to medicine in general. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the content. Obviously, the first priority is always the safety of patients and staff. So uh, you want to talk a little bit about some of the ideas that you had for, for pre-screening patients and how to address patients who may have a positive response uh, uh, response to a screening question that said they maybe have had exposure to COVID-19. To give you an example, that uh, the paper states the top priority is um, patient and staff safety and certainly provider safety. As I mentioned earlier, uh, there's so much that we don't know. So many of the positions that the paper takes are meant to be uh, developed in an area or a time that uh, there, there is a consideration that every patient is a possible uh, infective uh, COVID-19 patient. Uh, we're all familiar with the universal protocols that came out of uh, the era of HIV AIDS. I think we're entering a, a new universal protocol in terms of how you have to assume uh, a patient may be infected and how to treat them. So what we talk about is uh, initial testing. The, the truth of initial testing right now is it's a black box. There are many testing methodologies out there. The, the problem is uh, the return of results and the potential of false positive and false negatives are highly variable. It would be great uh, to get to the point where uh, we actually have a COVID-19 uh, test that was a wave test. Uh, some of you that are familiar with uh, CLIA waved test, it's a test that uh, can be administered in red almost immediately. That would be fabulous in the healthcare setting when you're seeing a patient because right now you're talking about testing a patient, say, 48 hours ahead of a visit. Well, you know, a test, the result is a slice in time that uh, you know 48 hours ago this patient was positive or negative, you have no idea the exposure that patient 
has undergone between the time of that test and when they show up for treatment. We talk a lot about uh, what distancing means in terms of medical practices, both in the office area and also for GI and surgery. Basically, you're going to lose about 50%, if not 75% of your reception area. Um, There's just no way to get around that. You may have patients waiting in cars. If uh, individuals accompany patients, um, it's unlikely that those individuals would be allowed to come into your facility because the patient may have been tested, but probably the people that came with them uh, have not been tested. The paper goes into uh, suggestions for not only distancing, but things like the PPE uh, that your receptionist should wear, um, and, and check-in procedures, uh, whether or not you use tablets, how you need to clean those between patients. It then goes on and describes uh, PPE for uh, both pre- and post-surgical areas. It talks about PPE that you would have in a surgical room and what you need to do Uh, both entering and exiting uh, surgical area. Talk a lot about hand hygiene. It's interesting when you you have the opportunity to work with physicians, surgeons, and those involved in ambulatory surgery, such as endoscopy centers and, uh, you know, or infusion centers, that they oftentimes have far more respect for hand washing, far more respect for for keeping a sterile area than many primary care doctors who are uh, perhaps a little bit more focused on expediency. And COVID-19 is going to cause, I think, physicians in all areas to be far more concerned on on cross-contamination of their working areas and of their their environment. Uh, We have to rethink how we do business in healthcare. I think the concept about uh, patients themselves, I think oftentimes we're going to see patients wanting more space. I, I doubt if, a pa- if your patients will be pleased to come in and find that they have, by necessity, proximity to anybody else. They've, I think you're going to see far more patients wanting to, be, to keep that space open. And waiting in their car may be actually preferable to waiting inside the building. Frank, uh, some ideas that you have regarding uh, PPE, you know, uh, I know it's a real problem for many practices to acquire. Uh, what has uh, Ohio Gastroenterology done to, to prepare for your reopening and how have, you require, how have you acquired the necessary PPE? Well, we, we've been somewhat blessed by um, having an excellent supply in stock of both PPE and also uh, medications, uh, uh, medications that you use to sedate patients. Probably both PPE and uh, those medications as we come out of this and begin to restart are going to be in short supply. Uh, As an example, uh, the FDA just issued guidance on the um, uh, compounding pharmacies being able to repackage uh, propofol into smaller um, vials because hospitals are having a terrible time uh, so, uh, being able to um, secure enough 
propofol because it's also used in sedating patients that are on ventilators. So keep in mind, we believe at Ohio Gastro that we're going to be able to open up, but probably not beyond 50% capacity for some time. So uh, we probably had uh, a month and a half to two months, uh, possibly even in some areas, three months of supply uh, for some items. And at 50%, that means we should be able to get through the next couple of months as we try and restart this. Yeah. We're yeah. Some, somewhat blessed in the fact that we had on-hand stock. For organizations that didn't, um, I think it may be very uh, difficult. I know that the group had a contact uh, with um, actually an offshore uh, provider of PPE and they were able to put in a large order uh, that hasn't been received yet, but they believe that they will be able to receive it. So, um, you know, in terms of supply, it looks like we're going to be okay. Uh, one thing that shouldn't be overlooked is the cost, but you're going to be changing PPE much more frequently and in almost all areas uh, more frequently than you did in the past. So your consumption of PPE is going to be quite high. Um, also, I'm glad you mentioned the issue of sterile environments because endoscopy is typically a non-sterile environment. And because of that, um, the staff have some knowledge about proper uh, donning and doffing of uh, personal protective equipment, but they may not be uh, properly trained in terms of doing that in a potential infectious environment. It, it's a simple thing. Uh, to the point of how you take your gloves off. How you take your gloves off is a very specific thing that you do. And uh, if you do that incorrectly, uh, as you remove the rest of your PPE, you're probably going to infect yourself. So I think we have a learning curve that uh, we all hope to get back up to. Um, uh, when staff and physicians are unobserved in non-sterile environments, they're uh, Compliance with hand hygiene is oftentimes less than 50%, and that's simply just not going to do it in this type of environment. Yeah. In fact, Frank, I think you make a really good point about training staff and even your providers on how to properly uh, don and then, more importantly, remove PPE. Uh, so there's a training process, and if, if practices, as they're getting ready to resume full operations, that think about training their staff, and especially those who, those support staff members who have, have not worked with PPE. You also mentioned since you're only gonna be working at 50% capacity, uh, you know, there's a scheduling aspect. And I know your, the paper goes into this scheduling because about how to tier your patients. Also, I know reading that some practices are looking when they reopen, uh, don't start with the most complex procedures, <laughs> you know, and you know, unless they're really urgent for the patients, you have to resume operations and walk before you run. So what has been the strategy for Ohio Gastroenterology? Well, we, we try and stratify patients in terms of risk. It, it's not included in the paper, but there have been published reports uh, expressing concern about the entire country basically going several months uh, without cancer screening in all 
all specialties, not just GI. And there's uh, concern about putting off uh, cancer screening in terms of an elective procedure for any amount of time because uh, all of the cancers that they would normally um, identify are now spaced out uh, downstream. Mm -hmm. Um, So obviously you want to get your patients that uh, uh, whose risk is um, higher than others scheduled first. But even patients uh, in a fairly low-risk procedure like colorectal cancer screening are still important to be performed because uh, if you don't have that and the patient waits longer and longer, we don't know what the outcome of that would be. I want to talk a little bit about the procedure room process because, again, I think this is information that transcends only uh, endoscopy centers but goes looks at uh, treatment rooms and procedure rooms in other specialties as well, to primary care to surgery. I think your, you know, your, the paper addresses the need for all members of the endoscopy team to wear a full set of PPE, you know, gown, gloves, hair cover, eye, and eye protection. And again, this is something that would be new to many practices where they've not looked at that extent of personal protective equipment, but it's critical in this new environment. Also about having... Uh, all members of the team, you know, have an N95 mask, or re- so they're protected, especially in procedures that may have anything that could spread uh, infection. Do you want to address some of these procedure room processes, uh, even to the point of if the patient is masked, how do you do sedation? <laughs> you know, you know, if the patient is masked, you know, obviously at a certain point you have to remove the patient's mask for the anesthesiologist to uh, sedate the patient. So you want to address some of these issues? Uh, Sure. Actually, in some hospitals, uh, especially in um, high-risk areas like New York, California, uh, anesthesiologists are asking to actually intubate uh, all patients. Um, We're not suggesting that in um, uh, the uh, ambulatory surgery environment simply because uh, the process of intubating the patient can also aerialize uh, the virus. Mm-hmm. There's actually, uh, say for upper endoscopy, where the patient can't wear a mask, um, the suggestion is there is a certain type of um, uh, oxygen mask that can be used that uh, greatly minimizes that. And the paper goes into some uh, extensive uh, discussion of that. One thing, in fact, the ASGE has a, uh, a safety guideline. I, I, I was one of the authors of it that came out years ago that pointed out that there wasn't any current data on the use of uh, caps, hairnets, and uh, booties, uh, shoe coverings uh, for endoscopy, that you might wear those in sterile environments, but you may not need those in endoscopy. And we've kind of rever- reversed that uh, in this setting because we do believe that that's important. In, uh, in the non-procedure room areas for uh, GI, we have uh, scope reprocessing, which there is a potential of a great amount of, uh, or a significant amount of spray and mist. And we're suggesting that not only individuals in your reprocessing area wear their normal PPE, but also masks and hair nets and possibly shoe covers also. You know, one thing, that shouldn't be overlooked 
is everything you bring into that unit now should be considered infected. That goes to purses, watches, uh, cell phones, everything. So uh, there's a discussion about, in fact, you shouldn't probably be wearing makeup because of the uh, potential of uh, allowing uh, air pockets uh, on your N95 mask. So it goes into some uh, areas that people might not have been thinking about in terms of everything you bring in is infected, everything you take out is infected. So, you know, like I say, the, the paper expresses considerable caution and attention to detail that we may not have been as familiar with in the past. Yeah. Uh, as we move closer to the end of our discussion, I'd like to talk a little bit about cleaning, the changes in what, how you lay out a treatment room or procedure room. A great example is that we, you know, if you, I, I'm visualizing when I've been in to see my primary care doctor, that there is a considerable amount of sometimes instruments, but oftentimes just you know, items that for convenience. Uh, there's a box of Kleenex on, on, on the desk. There happens to be uh, several containers of cotton balls and swabs and the like that are left out because they're going to be frequently used. In a contaminated environment, we have to change this. So can you, what has been your, your thoughts, plans, and ideas regarding room layout and then how do we clean it? Uh, you just can't you know, plan to have your MA follow up the room, wipe it down with a Clorox wipe and consider it be done. Sure, uh, let's start off uh, outside the room with uh, the way that you turn and clean um, stretchers. Uh, soiled linen is now contaminated linen. The way that you used to store that compared to the way that you would uh, store, say, sharps, which are contaminated with bodily fluid, you know, both of those are now, should be now considered infectious. The way that you wipe down a stretcher or an exam bed, people need to take more vigilance in terms of cleaning everything. Um, when you get into the procedure room or surgical area, organizations very frequently, uh, I do I do accreditation surveys, and it's quite uh, common to see the countertops uh, filled with various uh, supplies, um, syringes, uh, other materials that you're going to use for a case, uh, pathology bottles, things like that. And oftentimes these are left out between patients. Well, first of all, those are all contaminated now. You have to believe that. So you need to develop ways to make sure that you're storing those in a and bringing those out and then putting them back in as needed. Say uh, Clorox wipes or uh, special disinfectant wipes like, uh, I hate to use a trade name, but a lot of people use cavi wipes. Uh, those are actually meant to be used on dry, non-porous, flat surfaces. People need to be very cautious about how they clean things. Um, AORN um, has an uh, excellent uh, program on how to clean things. And they talk about, you know, cleaning is a two-step process. Before you can actually use a Clorox wipe that works, it has to be free of dirt. It has to be free of bodily fluid and liquids. So uh, the way that you turn a room and clean a room and the way that you clean things 
has to be rethought and uh, more attention to detail has to be spent on these things. Simple things like uh, that may have been overlooked in the past. Uh, how do you clean blood pressure cuffs between patients? Uh, tubing, things like that. All of these are now critical issues. You probably need to wipe down everything in a patient bay or a uh, uh, just like you need to rethink what's in the procedure room, you may need to rethink what's in an exam room uh, for office encounters because everything in that room should be considered infected and need to be cleaned as soon as the patient leaves. Absolutely right. And uh, I think that, you know, again, it's, a, it's something that a practice can very easily accommodate when they think about it and they plan the time involved. Now, also, as you mentioned earlier, we're going to, this is going to have a significant change in the economics of the practice because we are now consuming expensive supplies, you know, because PPE, even in the best of times, is not inexpensive. And you're going to be consuming, you know, multiple times more than we ever have in the past. So we're going to change some of the economics and we're also going to make, be much more inefficient because of the time required to, to clean a treatment room or procedure room uh, between patients. So again, these are new factors that organizations have to think about as they move into this post-COVID-19 environment. In the few minutes we have left, do you have any advice that you can pro provide what can help our listeners think about what they will need to do as they reopen their practices or they, they start caring for the pent-up demand of patients who are seeking care? Uh, sure. Uh, first of all, and, and very importantly, don't believe you know how to do this because none of us have ever been in this situation before. Um, certainly, uh, folks have dealt with infectious disease before. Uh, they've dealt with um, uh, patients that uh, uh, you may need to use uh, universal protocols on, but it's never been this. And uh, the need for uh, dry runs, uh, uh, first of all, establish your policies and procedures, base it on a guideline uh, that you have, and then do dry runs. Train, uh, train your people. Um, make sure people know how to take on and off PPE. We talked about that. But um, this isn't just starting all over again. This isn't restarting uh, your, your medical practice. This is something totally different. Um, and, and pay attention to that. Um, in terms of uh, taking time, uh, you know, one of the big things about hand hygiene, putting on, taking off PPE, everybody needs to watch everybody else because we very frequently get busy and we forget what we do. You can't afford to do that right now. So everybody needs to watch everybody else to make sure they are uh, handling uh, proper hand hygiene, that they're taking their PPE off and putting it back on appropriately. Um, buddy systems, when they can be established, are excellent ideas. Supervisors should be watching their staff to make sure that they're safe because really and truly the uh, biggest thing to come out of this is we can only get started if we're willing to be safe when we get started. This is not uh, a dry run to get started again. This is, this is serious stuff and we need to pay attention to it. 
Um, and I think we need to take time. Uh, we need to take time to prepare for this. We need to take time uh, to get this down. This, this is the new normal and people need to get used to it, but it's still gonna take some time and I think we need to realize that. Frank, excellent points. And I agree 100% that you know, business as usual doesn't work anymore. You know, doctors, staff, and administrators have to rethink what they do, how they do it, when they do it, and how they relate to patients. And I think staff protection, provider protection is paramount, uh, as well as making sure that we offer a safe environment to care for our patients. And I think this is going to be a significant uh, experience, changing environment for all doctors and all practices. So your comments today are very well taken, very, I think, very appropriate. Really appreciate your time and your expertise. Uh, anything else you'd like to add as we, as we end? Uh, well, just let me say that uh, uh, I, I've known you for a long time, and I certainly appreciate uh, the invitation to be able to talk about this. I think it's an important topic. You know, everything is basically a working paper right now. We're probably going to be in a different situation three months from now in terms of our understanding about how things should be done. Um, so I don't think anybody should believe that this is fixed in stone or that we really understand everything that we need to as we go back in uh, to opening up our practices. So uh, hopefully we'll be cautious and be safe and take care of both our patients and our staff. Excellent comments, Frank. Thank you so much for your time. I know our listeners find our discussion most interesting.